Welcome to Genesis. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I'm glad you are with us as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of John. We are 20-something Sundays into this. We are not done with chapter 7, and uh, there are more than 20 chapters in John. So, you know, our A third of the way through the chapters, we'll see how we go, but we're going to map it out to where as we get into the fall, we should be about in the upper room discourse. It's conversations Jesus has with his disciples. We have been, because we don't always come every week and because these passages are preached in 15 to 20 verse chunks at times, we may not realize uh, that we're still in the same moment in the Gospel of John that we've been in for about three Sundays now. And that moment is Jesus teaching at the Feast of Booths. It started with his brother saying, go down publicly. Remember that? They, they said to him, if you really want to be known as an important guy, you need to make a public pronouncement of yourself into Jerusalem. And he said, that's not my hour, my time. It's not time for me to go do that. So they are like, oh, fine, you know, having, you know, they did their little brother thing and moved on. And then Jesus went to the feast after his brothers headed down. And he has taught to this point on really his authority, where it comes from. The crowds still are confused. We'll see more of that today. But as, as I'm reading this and, and, and following along in these passages in John 7... I'm reminded of a of a Will Ferrell meme, which if you, if you know it, you know it. And if you don't, you're you're probably better for it. Or he goes, "Milk was a bad choice." You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, if you do, like like drinking milk on a hot day outside, maybe not the best choice to make. But yet, I think about that and go, "That's kind of our lives." Like, how many of us get into a situation where we go, "I regret that." I shouldn't have made that choice. I shouldn't have made that decision. I made a bad call. Uh, it, was not, it was not a good idea to you know, throw a, a birthday party at 7 p.m. by a swamp, like where mosquitoes are everywhere, which is all of our lives here in spring, or whatever it is. Many of us make bad choices, and, and though we may not admit it, at least, you know, and maybe if we're candid, we would, but we may not admit that when it comes to our spiritual life, we often make really bad choices. We make bad declarations, bad designations, that we miss things that are often really important. And yet, Jesus, in his teaching to the crowds, yet again, sets us straight with what he actually provides for us. In the Holy Spirit. This is the teaching he gives us on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in, in, a, in, a, in a, we could just say, a, a courtyard full of people who are misunderstanding who he is and who do not seem to have real interest in knowing who he is, but are rather more comfortable with their own declaration and designation as to his identity, which they do again here. They talk themselves out of believing in him as the Messiah because they have some preconceived notions about where Jesus came from and he doesn't fit the box. We will see again how Jesus provides what we really need. 
my ask of you this morning, whether you're here in the room um, or whether you're watching along online this morning, my ask of you this morning is to consider your own spiritual thirst and how you find it satisfied. The ways in which you try and seek satisfaction for your own life, your own spiritual life, the way you try and find meaning and value, the way you try and find life. My challenge to you is to consider the regular ways you do that and then see what Jesus offers. Now, there is going to be, as we go through this, a good bit of, of history. We're going to have to go into the Old Testament some. We're going to have to connect some dots. Uh, I, will, I will briefly talk about what happens at the end of the Feast of Booths, but this is all kind of positioning to understand why Jesus is bringing up what he is when he is. Remember that all of these feasts, all these festivals of the nation of Israel revolve around harvests. They revolve around God's provision of crops and water and, and food because they were dependent solely, as we are, though we don't think about it, on the provision of the land to give them what they needed. And Jesus first, in his first statements in verse 37, will tell us that he satisfies our spiritual thirst. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, last day of the feast. This could be day seven or day eight. People aren't sure of when it lines up, day seven or day eight. But what would happen at the end of the feast is there was this water ritual. And so this isn't, this, you don't find this in the Old Testament. This is what kind of just worked out as they would participate in the Feast of Booze. There's this water ritual where they would bring water into the temple. They would sing songs of God's provision. And so there was the tying in of water, which had with it, we'll see a couple of links of water in the Old Testament as to what God had done and what God will do. And it's interesting that in the middle of all of this, where the people would have clearly seen a link between water and God's provision, Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I do think it's tied to the water ritual, the Feast of Booths, and why Jesus is taking this idea of water and provision and linking it to himself. But it is important to know that water has a pretty significant history in not just the world, but uniquely in how God provided for the nation. If you don't know the story in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were thirsty. They didn't have milk. Milk was a bad choice. They didn't have milk. They needed water, and there was no water around. If you are familiar with the book of Exodus, then you might know what God provided. God provided water from a rock. A rock pours forth water. We find that in Exodus chapter 17. As the congregation moved on from the wilderness of sins by stages, they camped out at Rephidim, but there was no water. The people quarreled, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, 
Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They almost, they're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take into your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord there, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And the Lord was among them. We see water pouring forth from a rock, which makes other pronouncements, we'll read a little later, but makes other showings in the Psalms. We might read Exodus 17 and think of that as just a cool time in the nation's history, but they look back at Exodus 17 as, do you remember that time when our people were thirsty in the desert and had no source of water and were better off dead and God, even in our quarreling, even in our frustration and even in our bitterness, even in all those moments, God still provided for us what we needed and quenched our thirst. And so an Israelite understands the significance of water more so than we might. Many of us, if you're like me, you go, oh, I drink my water through coffee. You know, like that's just not an Israelite thing. You don't go, oh, yeah, I get my water through, you know, other things. No, you had to drink water. So it looks back, even this water ritual can look back at God's provision, the reminder that God gave his people water to drink when they needed it. But, but water also looks forward, which is interesting. Water looks forward to an anticipated time of living water that God gives you see this in the prophet Zechariah. For example, Zechariah 13.1. On that day, that day that is coming, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 14.8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. This looking for a day when God provides for his people and it is seen as water pouring forth from Jerusalem. And where is Jesus but standing in the middle of Jerusalem at the end of a feast where they've thought about water and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There is a clear expectation that Jesus has that those who thirst, this anticipation of need, the recognition of need, should come to him. Here's, though, why we make bad choices. And you've seen this. Even if you study nutrition, you know this. We think we're hungry when really we're thirsty. And so people say, you know, I mean, I'm so hungry. It's like, are you really hungry or maybe you're just thirsty? If you just had a glass of water, you wouldn't be hungry anymore. It's, it's shocking. It's that, that we don't realize 
just how bad we are at diagnosing what's really going on with us. We miss it time and time again. And we think we're hungry when we're really thirsty. We think something's up when really it's down. We think it's right when really it's left. We are not sure of how we actually are. And our, the solutions to our problems, we think our problem is here. And you peel back the layers and you realize it goes much deeper and has existed for much longer than we had ever actually imagined. That, the depth of a real, significant, eternal problem is satisfied in Jesus, the Messiah, the one the crowds could not see as the Messiah. The ones they just could not recognize as the one who would meet their every need. We are no different. We miss it. We misdiagnose what's really going on. But maybe I'll just ask a couple of questions. I can't answer them for you. But, but who here would long to just have life go differently for them? For every day, you just wonder why. Why does it happen this way? Why am I doing this? Why do I live like that? Why do I like these things? What's the purpose? What is the purpose here? If that may be how you feel, praise God that you might be just a little dissatisfied with your current way of life. Maybe you're realizing that you're thirstier than you think. That you want something more than what life is giving you. And you've actually come to the end of yourself and you haven't even known it. Maybe you're just dissatisfied with the way things are in your own life. You you look at how you parent and go, is this really like, Am I even doing a good job? Which is what every parent asks. Am I even doing this right? And then, you know, your kids are adults and you go, I don't know if I did it right. I mean, my kids are all right, I think. Maybe you find yourself caught, honestly, maybe you just find yourself caught in continual sin, habitual sin, and you're just, you're just internally going, I don't want this. I don't want to live like this. I don't, want to, I don't want to be known as this kind of person. And I just can't shake it. Why can I shake it? Might I at least posit to you that you're thirsty and you need to come to the one who gives you life. That if you try and quench your thirst with good ideas and YouTube videos and TED Talks to get what's really eating at you, you might numb yourself for a while, but you will not be satisfied. And yet this is what we do. This is what I'll do. So Jesus says, anyone who thirsts comes to me, and there's a promise that he gives which demonstrates why the type of satisfaction he would provide, is better than anything this world could give you. In verses 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John gives us his comment on verse 38 in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not Yet was not yet glorified. So we have to follow the chronology. Remember, 
like if the if the resurrections here and the ascensions you know 40 days later here and the spirits 10 days later here John's writing over here he's on the other side of the timeline and so but he's writing about events that happened before and so what he's doing is he's providing commentary on what Jesus was talking about even though at the moment they're like I don't know what you mean and so he's going back before, as a man with the Spirit, as he writes it, he says, this was about the Holy Spirit. But he hadn't given it yet. He hadn't given the Spirit yet because he had not been glorified. He hadn't been resurrected and ascended. And so the Spirit hadn't shown up yet. And so he was, in a sense, writing about what would happen, but also maybe why there was some confusion over what he meant. So he looks back and says... This is what he said about the Spirit. Now, a few things here. There's a requirement and a result. And I'm going to use John to help us with these things. Use, use previous passages in John, and then we'll go beyond that. Because he does say, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Which is an odd phrase that you can't really find in the Old Testament. You can't find that type of phrase, like water coming out of a, of a man or a woman. Like water is the, God is the source of water. And so we can't really find that link. So what might he mean? But first, there's a requirement. Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me. So there's a condition to the satisfaction. And that condition is believing in Jesus. But for those of us who have been here a few weeks, even if this is your first Sunday and you're familiar with John at all, you probably know this. But for those of us who have been here a few weeks going through John, we know that this is the prerequisite. Because Jesus has said it. I'll give you a few. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, you got it, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a pretty clear one. Truly, truly, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But yet he even rebukes crowds in John 5.40 and says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This sounds rather similar to the conversation he had with the woman at the well, doesn't it? You remember John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, and they're at a well, okay, and he's using the object of the well to explain a spiritual truth that the woman at the well in the moment doesn't understand, and he says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He says, Jesus says this to the woman, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so you see this pattern, even up to this point in the Gospel of John, of Jesus saying, if you come and believe, you come to me, if you believe in me, if you believe in the one who sent me, the prerequisite is receiving the Lord Jesus. Your hunger will be satisfied and your thirst will be quenched. Yet, there's also that conviction of, yet you refuse to come, that you may have eternal life. 
And so we have to understand as we think about eternal life and water and, and, our, and our hunger being satisfied and our thirst being quenched and eternal life being had that, that there's this flow of salvation where we recognize our need and we go to the one who can actually meet it, the Savior. And as we go to the Savior, he satisfies us. He satisfies our deepest need. So whoever believes in me, that's important. He just said, if, you have, if you're thirsty, come to me. Whoever believes in me, then he goes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. And this is interesting because there's a result of the one who believes, which is living water comes. And John already has told us that this is the spirit. So we already see that the spirit is the one who is given so what in the world, what passage does he mean? Well, this is sometimes where you and I, who exist in the world of chapters and verses, sometimes get confused. Because we're looking, right? Give me an address. I need to know chapter and verse where it came from. Uh, if I said, as Scripture says, God loves you, which verse would I be talking about? Which one? You don't know. You don't know which one, which one I might be referring to when I say, you know what the Bible says, that God loves you, that he cares about you, that he died for you. You go, well, I, 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 it could be any of a number of verses where those truths are said. For God so loved the world. God shows his love for us in this and many more. So Jesus, Jesus isn't concerned necessarily about chapter and verse. You don't have to give a chapter and verse for what he is saying to be true. Here are just some examples of verses that have been given that could be what he means about the water flowing out. First, we have to remember the ways in which he operates. Think about the psalm in Psalm 78 that speaks about Water flowing from the rock. He splits rocks in the wilderness, Psalm 78 reads, and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Psalm 105 highlights again God's provision. They asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendant. You see the link between water being poured out on those who are thirsty and the spirit coming upon God's people? Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So, so let me ask you, Genesis, which, which, which verse is Jesus describing? Which one? 
right? So often we want to just go, it must be Isaiah 58, 11, or it must be Isaiah 55, 1. If you went to the Apostle Paul even and said, like it says in Isaiah 55, 1, he would go, what? 55, 1? 55, yeah, right, like, like, like why, why do we need to parcel it out like that? But that's how we might think about it, chapter, verse, chapter, verse, chapter, verse. This may not be the same kind of link. And so what is Jesus saying? He is, he is in, in a sense, summarizing the result of what happens when people believe in the Messiah. They receive the Spirit, and as consistently spoken in the Scripture, those people are satisfied, and water flows from them. They are not the source of the water which sometimes people get confused with. Well, hold on, who's the water? Right? Believers aren't the source of water. No, God is the source of water. He is the satisfier of thirst, the giver of water, and he is the one through whom we can find this life. So what do we see here? We see that in Jesus, ultimate satisfaction is given through the Holy Spirit. That is the, the mechanism for that kind of satisfaction. The third person of the Trinity is given to us so that we can be continually satisfied by God. If anyone thirsts, come to me and water will flow out of him. And it must be an eternal source so that it is always satisfying. Now, at the same time, are there not Christians in the world and others in the world who might be physically thirsty? Maybe even you in this moment are physically thirsty right now. So you're like, wait a minute, like there's thirsty people all the time. You don't have to be a Christian to be thirsty or not thirsty. What, what does this mean? And there could be people who love the Lord who still feel like something is lacking and just remember this. We've already kind of recognized we're very bad at diagnosing what's going on. Remember the half-brother of Jesus, James, who rebukes the congregation he's writing to about their prayer life. And they're praying for, for certain things. And he says to them, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. So again, the congregation thought they had a certain need. So they're going to God with that need. And James is saying, you're asking with the wrong motive. You're asking in the wrong way. You, you're only asking for your own benefit. This is why it requires of us uh, multiple things. But constant fellowship with other brothers and sisters who can remind us of what's really important. Constant engagement with the scriptures so that we can see what God has promised and what God hasn't promised. And we don't become dissatisfied with what God hasn't promised, assuming that he has. God hasn't promised a life that is free of pain or suffering or heartache. He hasn't promised those things, but very often we live in such a way that if our life isn't going as we think it should go, God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. Friend, if you're saved, he is and will always hold up his end of the bargain. He doesn't stop. He is the only faithful one. 
He is the only one who's totally consistent, never misunderstood, always understanding what is right and giving everything that is needed. Again, very often, it's a misdiagnosing of what's really going on with us that we then tell God it's his fault about. But he has offered eternal life. The other things, though we suffer for a little while, though we struggle for a little while, all those other things are far less significant. Not insignificant, far less significant than what God promises in the forgiving of sins and the giving of eternal life to all who believe. And yet, what do we have? We have people, the crowds and the religious leaders, misunderstanding, which is again, just put ourselves right there with it, is that man cannot see, we cannot see naturally what God is doing from above. It requires his spirit. And we see again, people unable to comprehend what Jesus is saying. We see it in a public setting with the crowds, and we see it in a more private setting with the religious leaders. I want us to look at both of these because I really like the, the, the private setting a little more because there seems to be a, like one group's really angry, one group's like, I don't know, I, I kind of like what he's saying. And then Nicodemus shows up and he, and he kind of raises his hand. Hey guys, I'm over here. So we're going to see a few things. First, we're going to look at the larger group. When they heard these words, some people said, this really is the prophet. This was somebody who was prophesied would come after Moses. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. They had, their mind had potentially even two different people. The prophet and the Messiah would be two different people. So some go, no, he's the prophet. Some go, no, he's the Messiah. But others said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among them over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we see this, this kind of public thing. And remember that we talked about John's ironies? This is another one of John's ironies, where the crowds are so confident that they are aware of Jesus' origin story. They go, well, well, we know that he, he came from Galilee. That's where his base of operations was. That's where his family was. If we wanted to write him a postcard, we'd send it to Galilee. They don't know the story of his birth in Bethlehem. They don't know his actual lineage through David. And so they look at this and go, well, he can't be the Messiah because we know some things about the Messiah. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem, not Galilee. The Messiah comes from the line of David. And Jesus is neither of these people. And yet... He is. Again, it comes with this arrogance and self-confidence that people know God better than God knows them. That people are more sure of who God is than God is sure. And so they dismiss any thought that he's the Messiah because they're so confident in their right understanding of Scripture, their lack of humility in approaching Scripture to go, he can't be these things. where any bit of honest investigation would have them realize, yes, he came from David, and he was born in Bethlehem. But they just take what they've heard and what they know and go, ain't no way. 
Can't be this guy because of that. They said the same thing when we were together last week. The same kind of frustration. The same kind of statement of, he can't, he can't be. We know him. We know where he came from. So, not the Messiah. Not the prophet. He isn't from the right place. I was uh, meeting with a, a pastor friend this past week, and we were talking about uh, people's hang-ups with God and, and, and problems that they have with, with God. And maybe you're in this boat even, even this morning. If you are, you're in a good place. I'm glad to have you. But some of the issues they might have with God or certain, certain tenets of theology, certain areas of frustration or concern. And he said to me, um, he said, Hans, very, very often I find that people's hang-ups with Jesus have less to do with, with, with him and more to do with something that they've personally experienced. And, and, and thus they can't comprehend God in a certain way. Or they can't comprehend a certain kind of doctrine or a certain kind of... Because, because if, if they were to go there, it would then change some aspect of their own life or, or rewrite some part of their story that they may not be comfortable going all the way there. So what happens in those moments? One, that's very true. You might even have experienced this in your own life or you know this from maybe friends or family where they just go, I just can't believe in a God who would. But, but again, and let me, let me warn you here, even though that's a real feeling, it is a real feeling and we all deal with it in different ways where we have, we have some kind of experience that, that make, gives it makes it hard for us to believe in certain things. For example, if you, if you had a, a bad earthly father, people have a very hard time calling God their heavenly father. Their only experience with fathers are bad ones. And so there's no way that they could, they could see God as a heavenly father. And that's a, that's a real pain, and it's a real truth. And if that's even you this morning, I am sorry, sorry that that is what has happened to you and what you process and what you think about and it affects your view of God. But at the same time, I can say in the same breath, but that's not God our Heavenly Father. But sometimes these things we walk through feel so important and so significant that they become the determiner of what is true more so than what is true. And you can see this in the crowds They are so certain of their knowledge of who the Messiah is that they are unwilling to consider it Jesus. Can't be Jesus because we know this guy. And they don't realize just how far off they are. Look at the leaders. This is the the more private room. Remember, people were sent to go arrest Jesus and they were going to go and they were listening. and, And there's this whole statement about how they can't arrest him because, well, it's not his time. Nothing happens outside the Father's control. And so the officers, verse 45, then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him back? Where is he? Listen to what they say. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. You hear that? These officers of the temple are not just hired hands. They're aware of the faith. They're aware of the Jewish religion. They understand customs. And even they're going in and saying, 
I haven't heard anybody teach like this. This is the same thing the crowds have said about him. This is the same thing the, 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 the crowds and religious leaders will say about Peter and, and John later in the book of Acts, where they hear him talking and speaking, and they go, you're uneducated common men. How, how do you speak like this? And so they're hearing something in Jesus. These officers who were sent to arrest him just go, I, I, can't, I can't make that call. But look at the anger of the religious leadership. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You can hear their, their pride, blinding pride, unwilling to consider what is before them. They are dead set on Jesus dying, confident in their understanding. And then there's Nicodemus. I told you he was going to show back up. He shows up again, but here's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't really just go all the way out there for Jesus, but he, he, he moves, right? In John 3, he kind of comes to him at night, and he goes, hey, we kind of think you, maybe you've come from God. No one teaches like you. And now we've, some time has passed between John 3 and John 7. Nicodemus is clearly still a religious leader. And Nicodemus speaks up. And he essentially comes to Jesus' defense by, by bringing up a point of order. And he says in verse 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus still, he's not ready to say, guys, I think, I think we're in the wrong. There's still, I think at this point in time, for Nicodemus, too much at stake. So he's, he's going to bring up a point of order to kind of defend Jesus and keep him from being arrested because he's going, he gets to defend himself. But in the same way, look at this, this, this response. They come back, the officers say something. We've never heard anybody teach like this man. The leaders reply with anger. Have you been deceived? Nicodemus speaks up. <clears throat> guys, guys, I think the, our law says we should let him have an, have an audience. And how do they respond with him? Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, this is interesting because that's actually not true. There are prophets from Galilee. Their own prophets from Galilee that they should be able to recognize came from Galilee or came from the area. And so, so why, why are they feeling this way? And I think the reason they're feeling this way is because of their blind rage. They are unwilling and unable to even speak honestly about what their own scriptures say. And so rather, they try to put Nicodemus in his place. You look at the scriptures and see that what's going on here, this, this won't happen. Again, who's confident? Everyone is confident about who Jesus is. And everyone is wrong. They're always wrong. And what's funny is, Jesus is never hurt by it. He's never, I mean, he's never bothered that everyone is misdiagnosing him. Why? Because he knows who he is. 
and he knows what he has come to do. And so, as he remains faithful to what his heavenly father has put before him, he just continues. He doesn't go back and go, hold on, guys, I think you're missing the point. No, there are prophets that arise, but that's not even the point there. I am from David, and I did come from Bethlehem. He doesn't go into there and try to defend himself. Why? God need not defend himself. Ever. Ever. And so as everyone else is so bothered and torn up, and confused and arrogantly confident about the person of Jesus. The one person who's fine is Jesus. The one sent from his father to seek and save the lost, to offer his life as a ransom for many, to give of himself at the right time and in the right way so that sin might be forgiven. So I say three things to you. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. What's step three? Don't care. Not even worried about it. Go to Jesus. With whatever satisfaction, dissatisfaction you're feeling, whatever thirst you have, go to Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, coming out of it on the other side of his ascension and the giving of his spirit, we receive his spirit. And thus we find satisfaction. Go to Jesus, receive his spirit, find satisfaction. In that is no promise that you will be in some amazingly better financial position tomorrow. There's no promise that whatever issue or sin you are walking through will not have reverberations for a long time. In that there is no promise that there aren't going to be consequences to how you've lived or what you've done or what you've spoken. We are not going to Jesus so that the earthly consequences of our decisions can be Muted, we go to Jesus so that our sins against the holy God can be forgiven. That's why we go. We don't go in hopes that He also gets us out of detention. The satisfaction of the wrath of God is a much greater satisfaction than any earthly consequence for anything you've done. And so we don't, we don't worry first about, well, what happens if I confess? Or what happens if I do this? Or what happens if this gets known? Or what happens if I do walk in the light? You don't worry about that. You go to Jesus. This is why, uh, this is why if you're be five years old, 15 years old, 50 years old, 80 years old, it doesn't matter. You recognize he is who he says he is. And he saves that his salvation is available. If any thirst, if anyone thirsts, go to Jesus. He will give you what you need.